Hey, I'm Stephen Hovatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10, 15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. We are in the middle of our, kind of launching into our first series this year. We're focused on discipleship and prayer and invitation over the course of this year. And we're beginning with prayer. We're beginning with prayer, thinking about what it means for us to uh, be a people who are committed to, to who, are, who are devoted to uh, prayer. It's a hard thing to talk about, partly because um, for good reason, we kind of keep our prayers to ourselves, okay? Jesus himself warned us about the danger of making our prayer lives on full display in public for other people. And so we have a reluctance to maybe talking about what that space looks like for each of us. And it makes it challenging because I, I, you know, I really and truthfully don't know what your prayer life is like. I have some ideas. I, I know what mine is like and sometimes what I wish it were like. But each of us is in our own, it, it, this is a very personal and private space for us. And that's not the worst thing. It just makes it a, a challenge for us. We said that for each of these areas of focus this year, we wanted to ask a question. And for prayer, the question is, how can I deepen my experience of prayer? How can I deepen my practice of prayer? And I hope that's a lingering question for you as we work through uh, the subject of prayer over the next few weeks, as we mark off time in our our sermon space, in our worship space, our community space together to think about what it means as a people who are following Jesus together, who are devoted to that, what does the prayer piece of that look like? And how can you, how can I, how can we together be a people that is reaching towards God in prayer, looking to deepen our own practice of prayer? Where I want to start with that question today is to start thinking about cultivating a desire for prayer. I can only say it for myself, but I know that for my own life, I go through times where I am so acutely aware of how much I desire to have a fuller prayer life, a fuller prayer practice. And then I go through times where I just don't think about it very much. Somebody tell the preachers, amen. Now, I don't want to be up here by myself, okay? All right, is that, is that true for you sometimes too? Okay. And I don't think we should beat ourselves up too much for that. I think there will naturally be times and rhythms in all of our lives where we experience our need for prayer and other times where we, we just don't sense it. Or maybe we, uh, we, become, um, we, we become people who are times of prayer don't feel like they do that much for us. We ought to be honest about things. You gotta tell the truth in church, right? We go through times where we don't feel like it does anything for us, whatever that means. And so we 
lose our desire for it. Those coals that once burned really hot kind of get um, burned down a little bit. We, we're in good company when we do that, by the way. In the, um, about 500 years ago, there was a, a man named uh, John. John Saint, we call him St. John of the Cross. And John of the Cross, who wrote a book called uh, The uh, Dark Night of the Soul, you may have heard of that at some point, talked about, and he wasn't even thinking about that, that business of the dark night, talked about how it was natural for people to go through times where you don't necessarily get the emotional kickback of prayer that you do in other times in your life. So you may have times in your life where prayer is something that gives you great joy and satisfaction and is fulfilling, and then you naturally are going to go through moments where you're just doing it. And that's okay. Because ultimately, the thing about prayer that matters the most is not how it feels to us. About, about being people who over time learn to connect with God, to reach out to God, to practice as a discipline reaching to God. So that desire arc is going to kind of be a roller coaster sometimes. And we can be honest about that. We can, be, uh, we can say to each other, there, need to, there needs to be spaces and groups in which we can say to each other, it just feels sort of flat to me right now. Okay? And remind each other in that space, hey, push through. <laughs> Hang with it. Keep going. Don't give up on it. Okay? Not because you know, ecstasy is going to follow, but because that's who we are designed to be. We're designed to be people who keep reaching towards God, whether or not we find it immediately satisfying or not. I want to be a person that recognizes and honest about where I am and that desire for prayer, but who also, uh, one, doesn't depend on my desire to make my practice work okay but then secondly i don't my my desire isn't just what it is like i have to i need to be a person i want to be a person who is cultivating desire who is thoughtful about okay well my prayer not just acknowledging this is where my desire for prayer is but i'm also working on it right i'm also thinking about it there's a moment in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 11, this is one of my favorite little pa uh, passages about prayer, where one of the disciples comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Now think about where that desire is, right? This is a disciple speaking of his desire to have prayer, but also acknowledging the limits of what he feels like he knows how to do, right? I can identify with some of that. I want to pray, but teach me a little bit about what it means to really pray. Teach me about what it means to really have a deeper desire for prayer. And I wonder where this thought came from for this disciple. We've got some clues in the text. Initially, um, we get this, right? The first part of that verse says, he, Jesus, was praying in a certain place. And after he had finished, it was one of his disciples that said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So this is our first clue to it, right? 
Why is it that this disciple went to Jesus and said, Jesus, teach us to pray? Well, because he saw Jesus praying and there was something about Jesus's prayer and what it meant for Jesus to be a person of prayer that said to this disciple, I, I want to have some of that. Okay, I want to have some of that. I, I feel that about Jesus himself, and I'm going to talk about that more in just a minute. But I want to say I've had that experience not just with Jesus, but with other disciples, too, that have been a part of the communities that I've been a part of, where I see what prayer is doing in their lives. And I want to say, I could use a little bit more of that, right? Because it's clear that prayer means something deep to you, that it is driving you in some way. And I, I want to connect more with that. So there's a space where he's saying, you know, I experience it. I see somebody who has this vibrant prayer life. I want to be like that. But then there's also this next part too, right? Lord, teach us to pray, he says, and I didn't give you the, the second part of it, as John taught his disciples. Let's think about John the Baptist. And we, I think we've talked about this before. John was a very important figure for these early disciples. They understood that, I mean, he was kind of a model of what it meant for somebody to be a religious teacher for them in this new way of the kingdom of God. And they looked out and said, man, John is out there teaching his disciples to pray. Now, here's the catch for us. We don't really have, I wish we had some of that, you know, some old tapes or something we could find in the church basement. You know, that were like John the Baptist's teachings on prayer. We don't really know what John was teaching his disciples about prayer. We don't really have access to that. Maybe there's an old podcast archive somewhere. But what we do know is that this disciple said, man, this, this John, John's over there and he's given his disciples, his followers instruction about what it means to connect with God. I need some of that too. I need some of that too. I don't know what to call this part of the, the passage. Let's, is this envy? Is this wanting to kind of have the right boxes? I don't know. I don't know what's going on with the disciple. I do know that Jesus responded to these two things that um, the disciple says, and he offers them a version of the Lord's prayer here. It's a little bit different than the one that we normally say. But he says, we said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us, it's so hard for me to read this and not put the version that I know already in it. Is that true for you? Oh, you guys are just looking at me. You're not reading. Read it, read it. Come on. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. Like Luke often does. He gives us a starker version of the thing that we have in Matthew's version, in Matthew chapter six. But here in this version, this is just Jesus teaching. And of course, there were the, the Lord's Prayer was never meant to be just a you know a legal law of these are the only words that we pray with, right? He just Jesus is teaching his disciples. These are the sorts of things that are important for your prayer. And they're about God's kingdom. They're about reverence for God and for his name, worship towards him. They're about our need to have bread and to be taken care of. And they're about our need for forgiveness, our desire to be people who for practice forgiveness for others as well. And it's about our own desire to, 
to be people that aren't pressed too hard by trials and temptations and difficulties. Jesus says, these are the things that are part of your prayer life. So this is the answer that this disciple gets, right? This, Jesus is going to say some more things about prayer from that. He's going to talk about some of the things that you and I maybe would remember, like ask, seek, and knock, right? Those are, this is part of his teaching on prayer in just a few verses as well. That Jesus is, a, that God is someone that will answer you just like a judge who has his door locked and a, a widow asking for justice keeps knocking over and over again through the night. This is part of what Jesus has to say about prayer. Jesus has so many things to say and to show them about prayer. But I want us to come back to this thing that this disciple says, Lord, teach us to pray. I hope that that's kind of our stance as a church, right? That we are constantly looking to Jesus, constantly asking the Lord, God, teach us what it means to draw to you in prayer, acknowledging our limits and it's also acknowledging our desire to grow and to become bolder in prayer. When I think about what made this disciple at this moment say, God, Jesus, Jesus, teach us, teach us to pray. I think it is a response to what he saw in the ministry of John the Baptist. I think it's a response to what he saw in the life of Jesus as Jesus as a person for prayer. And many other things in the life of Jesus too. Think about where the disciples have already been at this point in the story. And if we, you know, rewind, I was about to say fast forward, but I really meant backwards. I don't know what the fast version of that is. Fast rewound, that's not a thing. If we, did, if we skip back a little bit into the story of Luke, we see what the disciples have already journeyed with up until this point. They've come to see Jesus as somebody that is constantly opening their eyes up to realities that they didn't have access to before. The calling of the disciples begins in Luke chapter 5 with Jesus and, and Peter there in a boat. And they're out and Peter knows how to fish. And Jesus says, put your net on the other side. You guys know this story? Huge crop of fish comes in, and then Peter says what he thinks is the truest thing about himself. He falls on his knees in the boat, and he says to Jesus, Lord, get away from me because I'm a sinful person. I'm a sinful man. Don't have anything else to do with me. I'm too close to the holy now, Peter recognizes. And he thinks that's the truest thing about himself. I don't really deserve to be here. And I know somebody here thinks that's the truest thing about yourself too. Jesus looks at Peter there, has him stand up and says, you know, from now on, I'm going to make you a fisher of men, a fisherman of people, people fishermen. There was something about Peter that Jesus knew that Peter could not know if Jesus wasn't in his boat. It's the new truth about who he really is, right? 
about who he can become. But it wasn't just that moment there in in Luke 5. I mean, the whole experience of following Jesus was filled with, with moments like that where you thought you understood something and you had to reopen your eyes to something new and different. The rest of, of, of chapter five, there's this moment where Jesus is teaching and some people, bring, or, or he, he recognizes that there's uh, somebody who's paralyzed and they're trying to bring this man who's paralyzed into Jesus. They want him to heal him. And Jesus says to this person, right? Friend, your sins are forgiven you. This is at the end of Luke chapter five. And they are all going, there's, there are two reactions in the crowd. One of them is all the religious people going, how dare he say that he can forgive people? Who does he think he is? Who does he think, and, and the text has a lot to say about this, that they are kind of chattering within themselves and Jesus perceives this and then Jesus enters into a debate, a debate with them, okay, because they think that, they have, that, that he doesn't have the authority to forgive sins and he engages them on that front. Now, another reaction in the crowd that's not recorded is the man still sitting on the mat. And I can see this going a couple of different ways. He may have known and he may have said, Oh, Lord, I have waited so long to hear those words of forgiveness. Maybe he had the self-awareness to say, yes, I've been laying on my back, wondering what was wrong with me. And finally, someone who will dare speak on behalf of God and tell me that I am a forgiven person. Maybe he had that perception, or maybe he didn't have that self-awareness and what he was really thinking, this is what I would be thinking, thanks for the religious forgiveness, would like to walk. That's what I'm here for, right? I don't know, at least at some point in that, Jesus is wrapping up that debate. We don't know what the man was thinking along while he's just sitting there listening in on it. Really glad to be the subject of a religious debate like we all are, right? That's a really fun if it's about you. Eventually, Jesus looks at him and says, so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive, to forgive sins. Say to you, turns his attention to the paralyzed man, stand up. Stand up and take up your mat, your bed, and go to your home. And it just says he did it and went home glorifying God. And all of whatever people thought about that guy before was different, right? Thought he must have messed up in life. Thought he must have been a sinner that was, had, had super problems that God had cursed him in these ways. Thought he would never uh, be able to, to contribute to his community again because of his, his crippling disability. All of these lies that were probably people had in their minds about this person. Jesus says, no, this is a person who's favored by God, whose grace is, who's filled with grace from God, forgiven and now he goes home walking and whole and free. Whatever lies you thought you knew about this man, this is his real truth. This is who he really is before God. What else did 
people have to re-understand, maybe in the next story, where Levi, the tax collector, is called from his booth and made a disciple, and nobody thought that would ever happen. Or maybe in the next passage, where Jesus has to speak to his disciples about what the laws of fasting would really mean for them, right? Laws for the Sabbath. Or whether it was in the, the next chapter, when we get when Jesus is talking about what it means for this man who is has a withered hand, and they think, no, no, you can't be doing, doing anything about that on the Sabbath. Wait till tomorrow. And Jesus says, let's just go ahead and take care of today's problems today. And heals this man. Every experience with Jesus was always an experience of having the things that you thought you knew challenged. Whether they were things you thought you knew about somebody else or whether they were the things that you thought you knew about yourself. Or whether they were the things that you thought you knew about God at every turn. His disciples, can you imagine the life cycle of a disciple's face every time Jesus spoke? And then eventually... They walk away. They walk away after Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 10. This is right before the prayer story that we come to, right? Jesus tells a story about Samaritans. There we say it. Good Samaritan. And I'm sure his disciples heard that story and they were thinking to themselves. How can it be? And they sat and they chewed on it and they thought about it. I don't know if it was later that afternoon, two weeks later, 10 years. You know, his disciples that heard that story eventually went and looked at each other and said, you know, sometimes it, sometimes it really do be like that. Sometimes those Samaritans really are like that. And the truth that we thought we knew about who the Samaritans were, the truth that we thought we knew about who those people that aren't like us, the truth that we thought we knew for sure about those other people. Spend a little time with Jesus. And you start rethinking that. And you learn that what Jesus has to say about the others. That's the real truth. The truth that Jesus has to say about your neighbors and your enemies. And about you. That's the real truth. Eventually you say, where does he get all this truth? Where does all this come from? This wisdom, this understanding about the way that, not just the way things look, but the way that things really are. How does he know it all? And you notice, the man that knows these things. spends a lot of time praying. You start connecting those things together, right? Like Jesus' understanding of the way things are comes from his life with God. 
And that's what prayer is, isn't it? It's that pursuit of the real truth thing. It's the, it's the moment when we turn down all the noise so that we can catch the signal. When we turn down all the static and listen for what is really true. My goodness, the lies are loud, aren't they? The lies are so loud. Sometimes I need to just stop and take a break from all of the lies and just be with the truth for a minute. You guys know the way those old movies go, right? The one where you find some twist at the very end that makes you rethink the way things really were. And prayer is that moment in the movie where you understand things differently than you had been set up to understand them. And it turns down all the noise of the illusions and the lies. I said earlier that, you know, I kind of go on this roller coaster with my desire for prayer. God help me. Maybe it's because I'm on a roller coaster with my desire for the truth. And sometimes it's just easier to cruise with the lie. When I pray, I have to put the lies away and just be with God. Now, of course, it's possible to pray with a layer of lies, but I think prayer at its heart is the space where that stuff melts away and we can just be who we are with the truth of who God is. And at my heart, I have a deep, deep desire to come to that truth. Not just naturally. At the end of the day, my cultivation of desire, my desire for prayer begins and ends with the gospel. I only come to that space after I've been with Jesus enough to recognize that the truth isn't there to hurt me. That the truth is not all of the negative, harmful things that are there to kill me. What is, what is that truth? What do we find? In prayer, we find that the first and last truth is that we are deeply loved. And that is the truth that drives me to prayer, that makes it okay for me to be in prayer. 
And it's the truth that I bring from prayer. That recognition that God is there and present and with me, that that is the ultimate thing. Who would dare say, Lord, teach us to pray, except for someone who has come to believe in Jesus through following Jesus, that that the truest thing about us is that Jesus does truly love us inside and out. I think the best way to cultivate desire for myself and for us as a community is to keep leaning into that gospel truth. Because there we recognize that our desire is not just something that we muster up for ourselves. A desire to be with God. Ultimately, it's recognizing that God, despite everything that we might have heard or believed about him, God deeply desires our presence. He wants to meet us in that place. Let us be a people who go to God, who reach to God, knowing God to whom we reach deeply and truthfully loves us. And there is no greater truth than that.